you got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of John, chapter 6. John, chapter 6. We've been in this series called The Grave Robber, where we're looking at the seven miraculous things Jesus did on his way to Jerusalem in the book of John. And we've talked about three miracles already. Today's the, the, the pivot point. Today is the, the middle of the sermon series. We've got three more after this. And really today is a pivot point in the life of Jesus and his ministry and how people responded to him. Now, as we get going today, I want to talk about something that we all enjoy, I think, and that is food. How many people here like food of some sort? All right. How many of you are going to eat lunch sometime today? All right. How many of you just, Paul, how many of you are eating out somewhere? And how many of you have a big meal planned at home? Okay. How many of you are grabbing sandwiches at home then? All right. Let me ask you a question. If you could eat, money is no option, uh, no obstacle, travel's no obstacle. If you could eat anywhere in the world, where would you eat and what would you eat? Now, I just want you to tell you, in the first service, somebody told me they would go to the Oyster House, which was fine. And I said, what would you get? And they said, the salad bar. <laughs> so, no, no, you, no, you wouldn't. Y'all don't give Kathy Yates too hard a time about that, all right? So, where would you go? You could eat anywhere in the world. Where would you go? You would eat salmon? Is that what I heard? Who said that? Raise your hand. Admit to it here. In the back. Steak and shake? It's sushi in Japan. All right, that's better. Thanks, Teresa, for raising the level of the palates of the people in the room. All right, Allie, what do you got? Brazilian steak. That is a brilliant segue. If I could choose anywhere to eat, it would be at a, what they call Chascaria, Brazilian steakhouse. Here's why. I got a picture of, look at this. And all of God's people said, I mean, look at that right there, right? This is what a Brazilian steakhouse is about. Here's what I love about Brazilian steakhouses. Some of you have been around. You've heard me talk about them. You can't talk about them enough, so just listen again, all right? First of all, I will tell you this, and this is absolute truth. There is no exaggeration whatsoever. This piece of meat right here will absolutely change your life, all right? It's called bacanha. It is unbelievable, all right? But here's what happens at a Brazilian steakhouse. There are actually now two. I think they just opened a new one in Nashville. There are a couple in Nashville. I've eaten, as some of you have, in the legitimate surefire thing down in Brazil. Here's the thing I love. They give you this little thing at the beginning that's green or red. As long as it's on green, they bring stuff like this around to you. When you are done, you turn it to red. Now, sometimes you turn it to red just because you need a momentary break. Sometimes you turn it over like I'm done with it. But, I mean, it is unbelievable. Now, I've eaten in Brazil at a steakhouse about seven times, Brazilian steakhouse, maybe a couple more, because I probably shouldn't tell this. The teams don't know this. I've had to do scouting trips a couple of times to make sure where we were going to eat was all right. And so um, I've done that a couple of times. But I remember one particular time. This was several years ago. It was like my second time to go to Brazil. We went to this... uh, Shaskaria called Porcayo, which means the big pig. And I sat between these two guys. I've got a picture of the two guys. I sat between these two guys. All right? Now, this is Gary Taylor, who is one of the guys that does our, um, does our ministry in Brazil and trains us. Hey, Brazil people, who's this? Yeah, 24-7. That's not his name. His name's Charlie, but we all call him 24-7. I sat in between these two people, all right? Now, the reason I sat in between is because Gary is my interpreter for the event. He tells me what to eat or what not to eat. Although the first time I went with him, he would only tell me what I was eating after I had eaten it. And so they bring it around and they're talking in 
Portuguese. You don't do, and I said, do I want this? Yes, you want that. And I'd eat. He goes, man, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah, we like the cow tongue here. I mean, Gary did that to me there. All right. 24-7 sitting beside me. Now, those of you that have been Brazil uh, and know Charlie um, will not find this amazing at all. But we went, the place that we ate, I remember Charlie leaning over to me and said, never eaten here. I said, well, why don't, why don't y'all eat here? He said, we can't afford this. And I said, well, like who eats here? And he said, only millionaires eat here. I mean, it's like one of the fanciest restaurants there. Our American money paid for his meal for that particular trip. It was like 25 bucks to us. So we're sitting there. And Charlie comes back. And I still don't know how he defied the laws of physics with the amount of food he had on his plate. I mean, if you've been, I mean, we're just having normal meals, Charlie does this. This was porcotta. I mean, it was huge. You've been to the salad bar, and it was just huge. And I kind of leaned over to Gary, and I didn't know 24-7 story at this time, and I just kind of said, man, there's no way he's eating all that. And Gary said, oh, yeah, he will. And so I turned to Charlie. I said, you want to eat all that? He goes, yes, when I get good food, I eat. So I found out some things about Charlie. Now, Charlie's story is very interesting and mostly true. He, we love Charlie to death, but you can, sometimes you kind of get intertwined in the specifics. Charlie found himself on the streets as a kid. Brazilian street kids is a major problem, and he found himself on the streets in Belo Horizonte, which is a city about the size of Atlanta. Charlie was found by a guy there who helps street kids by giving them food because they have nothing to eat. And Charlie told me that honestly, he never, he never rejects a meal and he eats what he can because he remembers the day when he didn't know where his next meal was coming from. I mean, I was there and I loved the steakhouse and it was great, but I've never experienced hunger like 24-7 has. And the truth is, as Americans, most of us have never experienced hunger like he has. I mean, we're the first generation of people that have ever gone on diets in winter. People went on diets in winter. They didn't choose to do it because they didn't have any food around. We're the first generation of people to open up a fully stocked refrigerator and pantry and say, I just can't find anything to eat. We don't understand what... Hunger. My guess is most of you know exactly what you're doing for lunch, where you're going for lunch. And if you don't, you'll spend 20 minutes trying to decide with the people around you because there are so many choices. You don't know what to do. Anybody here ever have a discussion with your spouse? Where are we going to eat tonight? I don't know. I don't care. I don't care either. Well, what about here? No, I don't want to go there. Well, I thought you didn't. Well, I didn't care. I don't care. Well, we can go here. Well, I don't want to go to that place. All right, Susan and I literally for a while, we did this thing where I'll just name the three places I don't want to go. And by far, of course, since we were living in Ripley, we only had six places. It didn't take that long. But Rivergate did take a couple of hours, all right? Like, I don't want to go here. I don't want to go there. And then we'd come, well, we, I guess we are okay here. When you hear about people like Charlie, when you hear about the population of the world where this is a reality for a couple of billion people a day, you realize that we are a blessed generation and it makes it harder for us to understand the impact of a miracle like the one Jesus performs in John chapter 6. We're never hungry. I mean, it's, wow, it's amazing. He took a couple of fish and some loaves of bread and he made all that food for people. That's really cool. But to those people, it wasn't cool. 
it was the most amazing thing they have ever seen. The concept of an all-you-can-eat buffet was not even in their mind. Let's look at John chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, just to kind of let you know, he had to give these two names because by the time John wrote, the Sea of Galilee had been renamed by one of the Herods into Tiberias after one of the Roman officials to try and gain favor. And so as John's writing to a great world, he wants to reference them both. Now, here's the thing. The Sea of Galilee is a unique place. It's where Jesus spent a lot of time doing ministry. And it's below sea level, but it's surrounded by these mountains. Anybody here ever been to the Sea of Galilee? We've got a couple back there. We had one in the first service, so that's three. All right? For those of us that haven't been, I've got an aerial shot of the Sea of Galilee. So this is what it looks like. And just so you know, it is sunk down. And so it is well below sea level. And then all around it are these hills and mountains and these little villages that pop up that are fishing villages on the side. In fact, here's a view from kind of sea level. You can see these hills and mountains rising thousands of feet all the way around. And so people would come here and they would build little fishing communities right on the banks and they would, whatever they could make from fishing is what they did. But in general, this area, the Sea of Galilee area, was one of the poorest areas of their time. And yet Jesus spends a great deal of time ministering here. Most people think that perhaps even on a hill like right here, Jesus would go and they would climb up the hill and he would sit here and people would gather around or he would stand here and people would gather underneath where they could hear. Here's what it says in the next verse. And a large crowd was following because they saw signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, just so you know, the miracle we're about to read, the feeding of the 5,000 men, is the only miracle outside of the resurrection that is in all four Gospels. Now, as a result, we have more detail about it than even John gives us because of the other three. And what we know is Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down with his disciples because he was trying to get away. He had been healing. It looked like it had been days of exhaustion as people are coming to him, asking him, asking him to pray with him. He is trying to get away because he is healing and teaching and healing and teaching and teaching and healing. Eight, ten, twelve hours a day, as long as the sun up. It's in springtime there, and so it's as it's growing. Now, you have to understand, they're nearer the equator than we are, so their seasons are not as severe as ours. The sun is not as severe. So he was going day after day after day, and he just got to a point where he said, i got to have a break. Like, I'm done. And so he gets away with his disciples. But the problem is, as he gets away with the disciples, the large crowd keeps coming after him. Now, how large is the crowd? Well, we're going to find out in a minute. It is big. And then he gives us this little detail. John just kind of throws in here, but it's so important. It says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now, let's talk about Passover for just a minute. Passover was the single most important event to the Jewish people that had ever occurred. And when Passover came, everybody came back to Jerusalem, and it was the height of Jewish pride. In fact, someone has said it was like our 4th of July just spread over a couple of weeks. Like they were so proud of who they were. But what they did in that moment is they remembered the great leader, the one who led them out of the wilderness, and they gave a claim. They gave praise to Moses, the great prophet, for two things. First of all, that he led them through the Red Sea on dry land. And so he traversed, he went across a body of water without ever having to use any kind of instrument, and the people went with him. 
And the second thing they praised him for was they got out into the wilderness and they were desperate for food and he called to God and God rained down manna from heaven. Now that's important because the Passover's coming. They're thinking about Moses and what does Jesus do in the next two miracles? Well, the first one we're going to talk about today is what? He feeds 5,000 people with bread that was not there previously, just like Moses rained down manna from heaven through God. Anybody know what happens right after this? We're going to talk about it next week, but you got your Bibles open. What does he do right after this miracle? He walks on water. He goes across a lake without any help whatsoever on his own. In fact, he supersedes Moses because he didn't even have to make the land dry. He just walks on top of the water. That's why the Passover tidbit is there. Here's the next verse. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Now, now Philip was the local boy. He was the guy that lived just a few miles from here. From what we could tell, he was right around the corner. So he would have known all the local eating establishments. And Jesus asked him, like you would ask anybody, you're visiting somebody's town and you hadn't been there in a while, what's a good place to eat? Jesus says, hey, where are we going to go get some bread so that these people may eat? Imagine if you're Philip for a minute. I mean, you're kind of proud Jesus is in your hometown. You're excited about him being around. And Jesus says, hey, where can we get something to eat for these uh, 15,000, 20,000 people? Where can we do that? Uh, nowhere. That's not going to happen, Jesus. It's, we don't have anything. Jesus said this to test him. Jesus is joking with him a little bit. Hey, where are we going to get some? We need some food. Where are we going to get that? We've got to feed these people. Philip, you're the local boy. Where's the stuff? Let's go find something. Where's a good little hole in the wall place we can get 20,000 loaves of bread? Where can we do that? He said this to test him for himself knew what he would do. Here's Philip's response. Philip answered him, 200 denarii. Woo, that's a lot of money, isn't it? You don't have a clue if it's a lot of money or not. Denarii was a day's wage, so that's about eight months' wages. So if somebody makes, on the average American, makes about 30000 a year, thirty to 40000 a year times eight, that's somewhere around 24000 to $30,000. That's a pretty good supper, all right? Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. That's not enough. And then there's this guy that's kind of hanging around Andrew. And Andrew comes to Jesus with a proposition. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, let me just say something real quick. Some people give Andrew lots of credit for this. Like, look at Andrew, always looking for the silver lining. We've got something here. I don't think that's what Andrew's doing at all. Because I know what it's like to be in a group of guys. And when Jesus says, where are we going to get enough food to feed these people? Andrew looks, hey, this kid's got five loaves of bread and a couple of fish. That's probably enough, right? Anybody here ever use sarcasm? Right? I I, I wish there was a sarcastic font in original Greek. Because I think this is sarcastic. There's a boy here. I mean, this isn't a solution, is it? Now, don't give me the thing that Andrew was like, Jesus, you can take this and turn it into whatever you want. He didn't believe that. Jesus is going to do it. There's a boy who has five loaves of, and two fish, but what are they for so many? Look, I mean, here, here's a picture of what he had. Um, there it is. Why don't we just pass that around right now? You know, how far would the fish get right here? That's not cooked, just fish out of the lake probably. His mom packed him a little basket. First of all, also notice these aren't really loaves of bread. When I think of loaf of bread, I think of like wonder, bunny, something, you know, big, something we can eat. This is like a... Pita dish, all right? A little pita bread. Like, that's the bread you get when you try to make people think you want to eat healthy, all right? And so that's pita bread, and it's barley 
what it says, barley, and the barley is the poor man's bread. So this was the poorest kind, small bread and a couple of fish. Now, just to give you an idea, we find out that there were 5,000 men there. Just to give you an idea, there were probably at least that many women plus children twice over. So you're looking at somewhere between fifteen and 20,000 people. Just to give you a visualization of that, I, I was in uh, Bridgestone Arena. Friday night for the Tennessee basketball game. There were not 20,000 people there. There weren't 18,000 people there. It was a smaller crowd because the Blue Mist were out, I don't know, doing what they didn't want to watch Tennessee play. But today, that place will be full. 17, 18,000 people there to watch a basketball game. Now, can you imagine if in the midst of that they said, we decided not to have a concession stand today. Here's what we have. We have five pita bread and two fish. And that's what you all get to eat. That's it. Here's what the verse says next. Jesus said, have the people sit down. I love this. Hey, tell them to get ready for dinner. We, we, we ain't, Jesus, we, we don't have any dinner. This is like mom calling you to the table for supper and there's nothing ready. Hey kids, come on, set the table. We're going to eat in four and a half hours. Let's go. There was much grass in the place. It just tells us it was that time of year. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, it's a picture almost of what he does at the Last Supper. He distributed to them those who were seated, so also the fish. And here's the key phrase. As much as they wanted. Most of those people in the group that day, those 15,000 people from what we know, most of them had never eaten as much as they wanted. In fact, studies show that the chances are that almost everyone living, normal person living in that day and time, would be considered malnourished by modern standards. The miracle is not just that Jesus made five loaves and a couple of fish be enough to satisfy the immediate snacking needs of the people. It's that they ate as much as they wanted. Now, it reemphasizes that in the next verse. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that has nothing may be lost. That was Jewish custom. They didn't want any waste. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets, symbolic of the 12 tribes of, of Israel. Also, I think, symbolic of the disciples. You got lunch tomorrow. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Seems like they're right on line. They're right where Jesus wants to go. But in the next verse we get, in this verse down here at the bottom, we get a picture of what this whole episode is really about. You see, when Jesus did signs and wonders, when John included them in, it wasn't just so he could go, wow, that's cool, that's amazing. It was to show us some things about Jesus. And this one, I think, shows us as much about us as it does about him. Yes, it shows us that he is absolutely the, the king of all, that he is able to control the elements, that he is able to take and make stuff out of nothing. Now you say, well, he had five loaves and two fish. That wasn't enough to feed him. Yes, he is the master of the universe. He is the unrivaled king. But look what he says about their hearts. 
perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. That's a strange sentence there. He says they see him, they're ready to make him king, but he knows what's in their heart. In fact, this phrase here, take him by force to make him king, really means they wanted to literally kidnap him and make him do what they wanted him to do. And they thought there are 5,000 plus women and children, fifteen to 20,000 people can take me and they can force me into something. And Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Here's what I think is at the heart of this particular miracle. And you're going to have to follow me for just a minute and then we're going to be done. At the heart of this particular miracle is a simple question that Jesus still asks today for you and for me. And it's this. Are you in or out? You see, Jesus knew that the people, it was, it was a rising thing. The, the, people were gathering from all around. People were telling each other, you've got to come see this Jesus, man. I mean, he healed this guy the other day, and there's this woman that touched You are not going to believe. You've got to come see him. You've got to see what happens. And so they come out, and Jesus has compassion on them, wants to feed them. Now, he's about to test both his disciples and the people. And here's what I want you to know. The disciples fail the first test and pass the second. The people pass the first test and fail the second. He's going to say to them, look, do you believe I can make this bread into enough to feed these people? And the apostles are giving him the, the true disciples. His inner circle is giving him sarcastic answers. We, they, we don't have enough money for that, Jesus. That costs us like thousands of dollars. We ain't got that. Well, we got a couple of fish. That'd be great. And the people, he says, just sit down. I'm going to feed you. And they just do what he says and he feeds them. But he knows in their heart, they're not really there for him. They're there for the food. They're there for the blessing. They're there for the healing. Jesus is looking at them and he's going to sift down through them. It comes a little bit later in the chapter. We're going to look at that in a couple of minutes. And he says to them, are you in or are you out? A couple of things about that. The first thing you need to know is that if you are a true follower of Jesus, at some point the math will not make sense. If you're a true follower of Jesus, at some point the math will not make sense. I don't mean you don't get it. I mean you get it and you don't see how it's going to work. Now, look at this. So, so this is the equation Jesus was asking them to believe. That he had five pieces of bread, two fish, and that he was going to divide that among 20,000 people. Now, I, I'm not real quick on math, and so I don't do this. Maybe we got a math teacher in the house that could help me. But seven divided by 20,000 ain't a lot minuscule, not much. What Jesus wanted him to realize is it doesn't matter if the math doesn't work out. If that's what I've called you to do, that's what you need to do. His thing was, what I'm going to do is turn 5 plus 2 times X into 20,000 with a remainder of 12. What we need to realize is the X factor is always Jesus. So you take seven pieces and you multiply it times Jesus and that's what you get. Now here's where it hits you. If you're a follower of Jesus, I know some of you are so excited we just did math right here. If you're a follower of Jesus, there are going to be times in your life when everything doesn't add up. He's going to, he's going to put in your heart that you need to go to Los Angeles or to Brazil on a mission trip and you have no idea how you're going to pay for it. it it's not like you can maybe squeak by. There is no idea how you're going to pay. The Lord puts in your heart that you need to you need to send a kid to camp this summer, and you're like, I don't have a clue how that's going to happen. The Lord tells you to take a lower-paying job. You feel like, I really need to take this job, but what about my student loans? What about all this stuff? I can't do that right now. Until When I get financially secure, I'll be able to do more. 
Can I just tell you something real quick? God really doesn't care about your financial security. Now, now don't hear me. God's not going to take care of you. But his major concern for your life is not to make sure you've got a good 401k. He's going to tell you to go to the school that you don't, you don't have a clue why would you would go to that school. That's not your first choice. That's not where you want to. He's going to tell you to go back to school. Well, that's definitely not what you think you ought to be doing with your life. If you follow Jesus seriously in your life, at some point, the math isn't going to make sense. And the question then is, are you in or are you out? He was asking the disciples, I know the math doesn't make sense. Tell the people to sit down. It's about to work. Are you in or are you out? Here's the thing about God. God doesn't need a lot to do a lot. How much did he have? Are you here? How much did he have? Two fish and five loaves, right? He didn't need a lot to do a lot. Some of you say, well, that's good because I ain't got a lot. Well, that's good. God often uses people that realize that they don't have much to give. But when you give it to the Lord, he uses it in a mighty way. The question he wants to ask is, are you willing to give me what you've got, all of it, in order for me to use it? It's the question, are you in or are you out? Now, if you've got your Bibles open, I want you to look a little farther down in the passage. Like starting in verse 22, we're going to put this on the screen too. And the crowd gets up the next day, and you remember, we're going to talk about him walking on water, but just to give you an update, he gets all the disciples in a boat, they all get away, Jesus decides he's going to go on his own, and so the disciples are out there, and he just starts walking towards them. Jesus walks on the water, gets in the boat, they get to the other side, everything's great, the people wake up the next morning, they go back to see Jesus, because that meal has worn off, and we need something else. They saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples. They themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. They're looking for him. We've got to find him. Where'd he go? It's a mystery. In fact, in one version, it tells us that they see that the boats have left, but only the boats that they saw leave, and they knew Jesus was still there. There's no boat for him to take. How did he get across there? It's this great mystery as they're going around the lake looking for him. It's almost like an episode of a, or one of those old Where's Waldo cartoons, all right? Like, where'd Jesus go? So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got in the boats and they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Here's the next verse. When they found him on the other side, they said, well, how did you get here? That's amazing. This confirms what we already knew. You're doing amazing things. And Jesus rebukes them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate all you wanted. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they say, that's great, Jesus, that's great. We want to do what's right. So the next verse, they ask this question. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe. Believe there doesn't mean just think about it. It means to give your entire life to. You place your entire life on him, in him who he has sent. It goes on to say, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the people go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait wait a minute. (laughs) Did he just say we had to eat his flesh? That's not what I say. That's what the verse says. The Jews then disputed, how can this man give us his flesh? So Jesus says, I say, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. Boy, this is getting weird, right? Now, we read this and we go, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. 
here's the thing. It hadn't happened yet. They didn't know it. They're hearing this crazy man that suddenly they, well, where did he get all that food yesterday? Well, what is he, what is he talking about now? You eat the flesh and drink my blood. It's like a vampire movie has broken out here. This is not reason for you to watch the Twilight series. Just, there is no good reason to read that. Give me an amen from the house today. All right. You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The next verse tells us, this is hard. Who can listen? And Jesus said, there are some of you who do not believe. The next verse tells us, on that day, many left him. On that day, after this, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go as well? So the next day they find him, they're excited. Jesus is going to give them what they want again. And he says, wait a minute, you're just here for the food. And they said, that's right, what do do we want to do? What is the work of the Lord? And he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. They say, we're out. And he turns to his disciples and he says, are you in or are you out? Do you want to go? Can I ask you a question? It's simple. I've said it many times today already. But it's one that each and every one of you in this room has to examine in the depths of your soul. Are you in or are you out? You see, the New Testament also gives us another book that John wrote. And there is a dire warning in there to those people that think they can somehow straddle the fence and ride down the middle. It comes in Revelation chapter 3 and it's to the church of Laodicea, and Jesus says to them that you are neither hot nor cold. With it, you were either. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, here's the thing. That word, I will spit you out, that is a pleasant way to say what is in the text. Because what is in the text is reminiscent, or the, the actual best translation of that is vomit you out. And the actual phrase for that is more in line with, um, and I don't know how to say this without being a little gross, so here it is. It's more in line of those that have experienced projectile vomiting. Anybody here ever, anybody here ever vomited before? Well, isn't that a great experience? Some of you didn't raise your hand. What in the The visual image is here is someone retching out everything that is within them. And it says... That that is what those who are neither in or out are like to Jesus. Lukewarm. So what are you? One of my favorite kind of questions that comes out of that is from a book that was published several years ago. I guess it's a classic now, although um, it's been around for only a few years. It's in a book called Crazy Love by Francis Chan. I just want to ask you some questions or actually point out some things to you about what lukewarm Christians look like. These kind of people. People that are neither in or out. Lukewarm Christians attend church regularly because that's what is expected of them. That's what good Christians do, and we don't want to be seen as somebody that's not that. Lukewarm Christians give to charity in this church as long as it doesn't hurt their standard of living, as long as they've got enough to be kept safe, as long as they keep getting what they want to get and what they think they need. Lukewarm Christians choose what is popular over what is right. They care more about what people think about them than what God does. 
Lukewarm Christians don't want to be saved from their sin, just the penalty or the consequences of it. Lukewarm Christians are moved by stories of people that do radical things and then they do not act. They call radical what Jesus expects of normal Christians. Lukewarm Christians don't share their faith because um, what would people think if they did? Lukewarm Christians love Jesus, but only give him part of their lives, a section, a slice. Some days it's a bigger slice than others, but it's still just a slice. Lukewarm Christians do not love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. There's too much else to give attention to. Lukewarm Christians serve God and others, but they have their limits as to what they'll do and how far they'll go. And lukewarm Christians feel secure because they go to church, they walk down the aisle when they were a kid, they were baptized and come from a Christian family and live in America. But they're not truly followers of Jesus. Are you in or are you out? At the end of that chapter, Jesus asked that question and Peter responds. And Peter didn't always get it right, but he gets it right here. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You hold our future. You have the words of eternal life. We have believed. We have seen what you have done. And we know that you are the Holy One of God. He says, our past, our present, our future is wrapped in you. And basically he says, we have nowhere else to go. People that are in realize that they have no hope outside of Jesus. So here's the question one last time. Are you in or are you out? Let's pray.